Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Margaret Chernavorian from Seattle Children's Hospital talking about disorders and sexual differentiation. Good morning. It is a uh, pleasure to join the COVID uh, lecture series. And I want to thank all of you, the urology residents and fellows and trainees uh, for all that you have done uh, during these extraordinary times in taking care of our patients and families. And I continue to wish you all uh, well and that you stay safe. Um, my name is Margaret Schnorvorian and I uh, am a uh, pediatric urologist at Seattle Children's and on faculty at the University of Washington in the Department of Urology. I've had the honor and pleasure uh, to serve as the surgical director of our DSD program for over a decade. And I'm also delighted to announce that my team at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's has been recently designated a level one uh, surgical center by uh, CH Cares as a uh, CH Comprehensive Care Center. And so this has definitely been um, a group of children that I have had uh, uh, the pleasure to serve and their families. I have no relevant disclosures. <clears throat> One disclosure though is that I will use the term differences uh, in sex development for DSD. Today I will begin with a brief case presentation of a very common uh, condition that our team um, cares for, then touch on the complexities of DSD management decisions, the history of DSD surgical management only briefly, uh, acknowledge the role of DSD advocacy groups, and then focus our lens on strategies for surgical management in DSD with ethical frameworks for DSD and highlighting what I feel is the role of the DSD surgeon. Indeed, at the 20-week ultrasound, the first thing parents ask is, is it a boy, is it a girl? Um, and then again, when the baby's born, everyone's asking, so is it a boy, is it a girl? And they're announcing, oh yeah, it's a boy or it's a girl. But then I found that despite what we, some of us feel is a move towards a non-binary uh, gender society, uh, this continues to be a challenge to use gender neutral terms, um, such as baby, as you see in the middle. Um, but it is important in the newborn period, especially as you are seeing and uh, helping care for urgent uh, evaluations of a baby with DSD to remember to use the term baby. And indeed, this case presentation demonstrates an example of where our DSD team was called to the NICU for a newborn with ambiguous genitalia, where the parents had been told on that 20-week ultrasound, oh, it's going to be a baby boy. But then at birth, the anatomy was certainly ambiguous. And a urethral matus that was hypospadic and severely hypospadic for a boy, um, and testes uh, that were not palpable. Our management focused on urgent medical and psychosocial uh, support interventions, such as uh, uh, electrolyte management and so on. And then we began with reassuring the parents that they had a healthy baby and that our team, including genetics, genetic counseling, endocrinology, urology, gynecology, psychology, 
we at Seattle Children's have the experience of taking care of babies with these conditions. And fortunately, we were able to make the diagnosis of 46XXCH salt wasting type with what we describe as Prater 4 anatomy. The parents were very interested in surgery, and so we began the process of surgical decision-making, uh, which included continuing to build a relationship with the parents over multiple outpatient multidisciplinary clinic visits. Uh, we connected our um, uh, uh, patient and family uh, with others, uh, families with CH. We provided resources for the CH Cares Foundation and also offered a second opinion referral if interested, which they declined. Uh, they did come for a pre-op visit, and that's where we obtained informed consent. And this process included a disclosure of risks, benefits, and alternatives, including no surgery, as well as expected or uncertain outcomes based on both experience and reports in the literature. So the following slides uh, demonstrate what I do review uh, with families during the process regarding surgical of obtaining consent uh, regarding our surgical approaches. This slide demonstrates uh, what I review with families regarding our understanding of the innervation uh, and anatomy of the clitoris and how uh, very analogous to uh, our uh, uh, patients with male typical male anatomy, uh, which we as pediatric urologists have significant experience with, the nerves are dorsal. And this has guided our modern approach which is demonstrated here where the dissection is approached ventrally, not dorsally, to preserve that neurovascular bundle. And one other thing that I want to highlight from this slide also is that I preserve the glands. In the past, you may have read that uh, previous approaches involved a uh, clitorectomy, which included amputation of the glands, um, which involved reduction of the glands. And I, I will tell you that we preserve the entire glands. And that the neurovascular bundle is preserved, as I mentioned, here demonstrating how we ligate that base of the spongiosal tissue uh, during surgery, again, avoiding the dorsal neurovascular bundle. Modern techniques have truly improved and advanced our care of uh, uh, infants with CAH. And we now approach, and I have approached for over a decade now, uh, these uh, reconstructive surgeries with a partial urogenital mobilization, which is seen here, uh, and combined with a posterior omega flap, uh, which can be used to bridge any gaps needed uh, on the posterior vaginal wall. This is a key concept where both the urethra and the vagina are brought down to the perineum in a tension-free fashion. And the thought here is that we are preserving the common blood supply and minimizing uh, what is the main uh, uh, long-term uh, complication, which can be seen with uh, previous reconstruction, reconstructive approaches of vaginal stenosis. Here, we preserve the blood supply and add a flap uh, to the posterior vaginal wall. And this allows for a more orthotopic uh, urethral meatus. 
Again, I also review with the parents that we uh, utilize that urogenital sinus if needed uh, to construct anterior vaginal wall and then to use the flap posteriorly for posterior vaginal wall uh, when there is uh, the need to take the vagina off of the uh, urethra if the urethra is short or this is a, a high uh, urogenital sinus. Now in our patient, uh, that I presented, uh, she underwent an uncomplicated feminizing genitoplasty, which included a clitoroplasty using the approach I described, a partial uh, urogenital mobilization with flap, and uh, she continues to do well. I've had the honor to care for her family, and, and, and we continue to follow her in our multidisciplinary program. Briefly, what is this, a difference in sex development? Well, the true incidence of all DSD form uh, conditions is unknown, but it can range from 1 in 200 to 1 in 4,500. And, uh, and I think that it's, uh, uh, our true estimates really uh, remain unknown. The key take home for you is that this is a congenital condition that is associated with atypical chromosomal, gonadal, or anatomical sex. This is a congenital condition with medical implications. Also, that this is a range of phenotypes. Uh, the phenotype can range from a perineal hypospadias, in which case the case presentation that I presented could easily have been a 46XY uh, DSD requiring uh, multiple staged uh, perineal hypospadias reconstruction approaches, which I uh, will not go in this morning. But you know, you can have uh, what appears to be a very typical female with discordant internal anatomy, a female with the development of of uh, the uh, virilization described here, and it's truly a range. So the case of CH that I presented highlights this range of phenotypes from what I now use typical rather than normal in my uh, lexicon when I speak with families uh, to typical female. And this is a Prater scale indeed. Um, this is not uh, a perfect in any way um, uh, a way to, to assign uh, the anatomic phenotype given that it is categorical. Uh, but it is, it is a, uh, one that demonstrates the true range both internally and externally of findings in this condition. Uh, this case also uh, demonstrates that in the context of DSD, significant decisions may have to be made while the child is very young and often during infancy. And that's going to be the focus of our discussion today uh, regarding infancy and early childhood. These decisions can relate to sex of rearing. Again, the parent or team does not assign gender identity. Only the child and individual will assign their identity. But we are discussing decisions relating to sex of rearing um, early on, hormonal therapy, surgery, or the option of no surgery. Noting that a delay to perform surgery is a decision that could be made and not a non-decision. Uh, the goals of surgery include altering the appearance of the genitalia, improving the urogenital function, and in instances, reducing cancer risk. I recognize that selecting the best management and informed consent process in DSD is complex. We continue to grapple with technical, psychosocial, cultural, and ethical challenges, such as the degree of probability associated with certain outcomes rather than the certainty of outcomes and we are offering trying to compare outcomes of qualitative different kinds. 
The modern history of DSD from the 1950s on is marked by uh, the John Money approach in the past that suggested that gender was learned uh, rather than innate, and that led to decades of, of um, errors uh, in assignment and management, which we'll touch on next, uh, but it, and which then prompted uh, the consensus statement over a decade ago, which put forth this taxonomy initially described as disorders of sex development, now uh, we remove the term disorders and use the term differences of sex development, but the controversies continue um, with regards to uh, the nomenclature. But I think this brings us back also to the history of DSD surgical management and in the modern era, uh, which my case presentation highlights, that advances in our understanding of the anatomy and in our surgical techniques, I do hope will lead to, a, to brighter futures. I want to acknowledge the role and the importance that advocates have had in this shift in management and that this management is complex. And their voices arose from dissatisfaction and anger of some adults with DSD regarding concerns about insufficient information, lack of opportunities for shared decision-making making given to parents of infants with DSD, uh, the view that no genital surgery should be performed until the child is old enough to understand the situation and make their own decisions. Indeed, there is a range of perspectives among these advocacy groups. For example, the CH Cares Foundation recommends uh, the option for surgery with technical expertise and even wants to secede uh, from the DSD umbrella because of dissent with the extreme views of other uh, DSD groups uh, towards surgery. So how do we navigate surgical decision-making for children with DSD? Uh, this slide highlights the questions that I as a DSD surgeon grapple with. And I'm going to share with you some of my approaches based upon what I have learned uh, from scholars in bioethics. Um, and, and what they have written. And this begins with what are ethical frameworks that can guide our DSD decision-making? I will demonstrate ethical frameworks in the context of DSD. Uh, what are tools that we can use to implement these ethical frameworks? I believe we can limit DSD decisions to the zone of parental discretion in infancy. And what is the ideal DSD surgeon-patient relationship? And I will put forth that I believe it's the deliberative uh, uh, relationship uh, in a DSD team family model. This is a model of decision-making in DSD. On the left, there are decisions in infancy that support the optimal sex of rearing. And then on the right, there is informed consent of the patient and waiting until they are an adult. I believe it's not one or the other, but that we can obtain, in, obtain informed consent for the parent, again, we're discussing in infancy, guided by ethical frameworks in DSD, the zone of parental discretion, and the deliberative model. These are key recommendations from an ethical framework for DSD. And I truly feel these summarize what can guide our navigation uh, of management and care for these children uh, long-term. 
begins with differences of sex development do not represent a surgical emergency, but in general, a psychosocial one. Remember that patient that I described and her family, we began with urgent medical and psychosocial support and took time for the family to understand and care for their daughter and then uh, the process of informed consent. Next, the multidisciplinary healthcare team must comprehensively involve the parents in the decision-making. I showed you slides that are from a urology journal that I actually go through with families um, in detailed uh, visits. And, and they do need to be also in the guise and in the um, uh, uh, team model uh, with our endocrinologists, our genetic counselors, our psychologists, our nursing, um, and completely involved in that process. Next, the child's well-being is not automatically insured by determining an external unambiguous sex. This speaks to what I mentioned earlier regarding the nu nuance of terminology with regards to assigning sex averting, but not assigning gender identity. Gender identity is what the child will assign for themselves during development. A therapeutic stance of openness and acceptance is to be encouraged. And explicit reasoning and justification are necessary when interventions are being considered that are not substantiated by conclusive scientific evidence. This really speaks to the fact that we need more um, and continued uh, uh, follow-up uh, to inform uh, long-term outcomes of our modern techniques. And we are certainly um, um, seeing that informing our decisions, but as I alluded to, there is still quite a bit of uncertainty in some uh, situations, and that's where uh, the rationale uh, needs to be uh, clearly described and well understood uh, by the family. As a rule, unless the child's well-being would otherwise be severely impaired, decisions about the removal of organs or structures important to an individual's physical integrity or sexual identities, such as the gonads, should be left up to the affected person themselves. I will tell you, uh, there are many uh, scenarios where I am um, and our team is really having to help the family understand why we are not uh, removing the testis in their little girl. For example, um, let's say in the case of uh, CAIS or other uh, potential diagnoses and, and and saying really this is going to be her decision uh, when she goes through puberty and is an adult. For example, there are many others. The child should be given information about its condition that is commensurate with its age. I cannot emphasize this enough. This is based on building trust with that child and that child building a trusting relationship with their parents but also with our team and that there is a developmentally appropriate way to introduce these concepts. Um, and that's where these kids and their families being followed and cared for in the context of a multidisciplinary team over development helps to address developmentally appropriate, not only medical or surgical concerns, but uh, uh, concerns about their condition. The more they understand, the better uh, they will be able to care for themselves 
um, as they uh, get older and transition really into adulthood. And, and that leads to the right of the future adult to obtain information about the treatment. Um, I, I know the, the term here was it um, used in this article, um, but they received during childhood and this is really challenging. But you know, this is not uh, unique necessarily to the DSD uh, group of individuals. We see this in a lot of individuals with congenital conditions and uh, transitioning into adulthood. But I believe this is really important um, that they understand their diagnoses, what um, has uh, been done to evaluate and manage so that moving forward, they can have healthy adult lives. An example of this, for example, I'll use the CAIS example. Um, you know, an adult uh, who underwent orchiectomy but uh, wasn't aware and, and wasn't on optimal hormone replacement therapy uh, could be subject to cardiovascular or bone density sequelae. And, and I have certainly met women um, in their late 30s uh, where that was the case. And so this is a key piece that they uh, understand. So what are, uh, well, I should say, a tool for decision-making in DSD I alluded to is the zone of parental discretion. So we've introduced this ethical framework as I've summarized, but, but how do we uh, apply that? Um, the zone for parental discretion is based on the following principles, and this was actually uh, put forth uh, by a leading bioethicist uh, and scholar at, at uh, Seattle Children's University of Washington um, and has been uh, a cornerstone for uh, bio bioethics and pediatrics. Uh, parents have an ethical right to make medical decisions for their children uh, based on their own conception of the good life. Parents are not morally obliged to maximize the well-being of their child. Um, the bioethics literature uh, and ethics literature refers to the good enough parent um, as, as, the, as the goal. But that the limit to parental authority lies at the point where significant harm is likely to be caused to the child. For example, as I alluded to with the um, uh, instance around decision-making for the gonads. Parents' decisions should only be overridden if the child is likely to suffer significant harm from the decision. So these are uh, the questions uh, that the tool involve, uh, utilizes regarding uh, assessing the parents' uh, harm from the parents' decisions. What are the parents' wishes or decision? This is a key aspect of care of families with DSD, getting to understand the values and, under, and um, where that family's coming from and what their wishes and desires are of their child. Um, just as any other uh, parent has wishes and desires for their child. Sometimes this is regarding fertility. Sometimes this is regarding a whole array um, based on um, cultural context or so forth. What would be the effects on the child of carrying out the decision? Are the effects so bad as to constitute probable significant harm? And this is how we would limit that zone of parental discretion. Uh, the zone of parental discretion uh, continues with the harm from overriding the parent's decision with questions regarding what are the effects on the child of attempting to or succeeding in resisting the parent's decision, and if there are likely to be negative effects, would this constitute greater harm to the child than the harm from the parent's original decision? I believe this tool uh, must be implemented in the context of the surgeon-patient relationship model, and this leads me to the next concept. There are four doctor-patient relationship models um, 
this is a classic um, uh, approach over the decades that has led our uh, legal and ethical understanding of the doctor-patient uh, relationship. Many have attacked physicians as paternalistic, urging the empowerment of patients to control their own care. Then the informative model has become dominant in bioethics and legal standards. However, this model embodies what I and others feel is a defective conception of patient autonomy. It reduces the physician's role to that of a technologist, and the physician is a purveyor of technical expertise or relevant information and letting the patient simply decide and the physician to execute their decision. Now, work with decision support tools recently may have enhanced this model and may be a bridge to what is an interpretive uh, relationship. But in the deliberative model highlighted here, a caring uh, DSD physician integrates the medical condition and the health-related values and makes a recommendation on the appropriate course of action. So what should be the ideal physician-patient relationship? This is an image of Sir Luke Fildes's 1891, The Doctor uh, at the Tate Museum in London that evokes for me that deliberative model. Um, my uh, chairman uh, at the University of Washington when I uh, began my fellowship would often put this um, uh, painting up and call to our attention uh, the role of the physician as a healer. Um, uh, and for me, it evokes this concept of a deliberative surgeon with ideals that do not constitute minimum ethical or legal standards and are what we could say higher than the law, but not above the law. I propose that a deliberative DSD surgeon patient family model is descriptively and prescriptively the ideal and why. It more nearly embodies our ideal of autonomy. Autonomy requires that individuals critically assess their own values and preferences. Society's image of an ideal physician is not limited to communicating relevant information about the genetics or the hormones or the anatomy, but it, and, it, and it goes beyond that. For example, here in literature, art, culture, it's the caring physician who integrates the information and relevant values to make a recommendation that promotes their patient's overall well-being and is with them through that process and for the long term. Now there is a nuance to this patient uh, physician model when it relates to the DSD surgeon because the DSD surgeon also has an important role on the multidisciplinary team. And I would propose relies on the strengths of a multidisciplinary team um, and what I feel should be the standard of care for DSD with a multidisciplinary team approach. And I certainly uh, have felt honored uh, to work with over almost 15 years now, I've worked with these individuals from uh, genetics, endocrine, uh, gynecology, psychology, nursing, who can uh, provide the best possible care um, to our patients and families. Uh, this talk was informed by a significant reading, as I alluded to, um, with regards to scholars and bioethics, as well as uh, chapters that I have uh, written 
And I also hope that you have uh, taken advantage of a very well-written AUA core curriculum. Right now, I hope I've left enough time for what I hope will be an opportunity for questions, um, because this is a field that I hope you are asking questions about as we continue to understand. Um, and it's a field that is very different than the one when I was in your shoes as a, uh, a trainee in medical school or residency or fellowship. At this point, I want to introduce uh, uh, Katie Canalicchio. Dr. Canalicchio, I have asked uh, to moderate uh, today's uh, questions. She is our uh, second year pediatric urology fellow who I am uh, very fortunate to have uh, worked with um, over the past two years and especially during her um, IEP research year um, as she has uh, definitely uh, worked towards advancing our understanding of long-term outcomes of uh, children with DSD, specifically girls. Uh, with that, uh, Katie, do you want to um, open up for questions? Dr. Norvorian, for that wonderful lecture. Um, a question that has arose from the audience, uh, there will likely be conflict with the parent's ethical decision to make choices for their child and letting the child decide for themselves. How do you resolve this, especially if the parents are adamant and there will be no apparent physical harm to the child? So, I believe this is where it really gets down to a relationship uh, with the patients and family. First of all, excellent, thoughtful question. Um, thank you so much for that question. It really gets down to developing a relationship with that family. Um, and I certainly have been in those instances where number one, I need to ensure that while we may have provided the family with information, that they truly understand and remember, DSD is a complex condition with, I work with an expert in genetics who every clinic I'm learning something new um, from or regarding, you know, the pathways, for example, the steroid, you know, pathways. I mean, these are things that we're expecting medical students to understand. And so really ensuring that the family has a basic understanding. And that's where we can begin um, with a shared decision-making approach. We have to make sure that there's a basic understanding. We have a genetic counselor that goes over um, by potential development of the gonad, for example. So that is key that we have informed them. And I'll tell you, there have been instances exactly like the one you've described where I have also brought in what we have at Seattle Children's is called a patient navigator, where we had uh, not only a language difference, okay, so I had to go through an interpreter, but now a navigator who takes what I'm saying and interprets it in the context of the family's culture. That added to my um, team's ability to communicate effectively with the family. So once we feel that we've done our part in continuing, you know, and it's not a one-time educational session, each visit, sometimes it involves bringing the family in more often, and in each visit, touching on these concepts, asking them, well, what are the questions you have? What are the concerns you have? And why are you having those concerns? Maybe it's because they still don't understand that, oh yeah, my daughter who's 46XY and has complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, even though she has testes, she's not going to grow a beard at puberty. You know, we're not going to remove her testes. She's 
she is a girl, you can raise her as a girl, but the issue for that family became fertility and fertility potential, for example. So I think that we need to ensure the family understands and that they understand our rationale, let's say, for why we don't agree with their decision or don't support their decision, but continue to partner with them because we really need to work together. It cannot be adversarial. It really has to be a shared approach of understanding and support. Um, this also comes in where our psychologist has helped really um, dig deeper into what's driving some of their uh, decision-making. Um, but it gets down to that zone of parental discretion. That has truly helped guide our principles. So as I mentioned, those ethical frameworks, uh, and I can go back to those slides briefly, let's see. Those ethical frameworks, I believe, when put in the context of what is a zone of parental discretion, and then applying the tool I mentioned with regards to the, the questions, I mean, this is the model that is challenging in decision-making. I don't think it's just one or the other, you know, wait till they're an adult and let the child decide everything in some instances, which is that informed consent model. And I don't think it's, you know, the assign and reconstruct and everything is aligned with the assigned sex um, in infancy. I think it gets back to this concept of zone of parental discretion. And with that, getting back to these models, I think one of the biggest issues is around um, irreversible uh, removal of gonads. I think that's also where, you know, I'm humbled. This is a long-winded answer, and so cut me off at any point, Katie. Uh, but for example, I have I have a patient who um, was cared for in another country, uh, where at birth, emergently, uh, both testes were removed. Um, they, you know, it was a karyotype 46XY. Um, they thought the diagnosis was partial antigen insensitivity although the child was very under-virilized. And so they assigned uh, male sex of rearing and then uh, came to our team at age 11 uh, with significant um, uh, uh, concerns, uh, asking for a vagina, asking for breast um, um, development hormonally. And we really slowed things down and um, we've supported her for almost, oh my gosh, yeah, it's been over 10 years now. And now with advances in genetics, guess what? We re-ran her whole um, uh, DST sequence. She has five alpha reductase. So removal of those testes wasn't necessarily, uh, probably it was more harm. And that's where I get back to that historical perspective. So I think moving forward, we need to make sure we're getting the most information from genetics, endocrine, psychology, and, and, and surgery, urology, we're getting to ensure that the family understands our recommendations and also using these ethical frameworks to guide us and um, uh, working together with the family. And, you know, sometimes that means adding these other um, aspects um, to support the family. But ultimately, we have, I have a responsibility to the child. Thank you so much. I think a few questions that are uh, coming up kind of are playing off of your answer. Uh, what would you like to see the future of DSD management? What might be the role of genomics in diagnosis or treatment? And so I think maybe that uh, your answer kind of uh, alluded to a little bit. So yeah. the question about the future of DSD, well, I'll tell you, you um, the, the, are the future. Um, urology trainees, urology fellows, 
um, gaining a better understanding of how complex DSD is. Beginning with that, beginning with the education of all of you. Um, and I think that if you can be exposed to teams um, that are providing this care or acknowledge that this care really should be um, based on what our consensus statement recommendations, this is not just my opinion. You know, in 2006, I was a fellow and these statements came out saying, you need a team, you need a multidisciplinary approach, you need a surgeon who has expertise in these techniques. And I do feel that's really important. I think that um, uh, that's the key, being guided by those. And it's going to change. I mean, DSD has changed even the last 10 years, really, um, in our management. And I think with regards to genomics, I've been very involved in research relating to genomics um, and gen genetic diagnoses of DSD. I mean, we've gone from a few genes to, I believe in the article you read in the AUA curriculum, it said 50. There's way more than that. There's over 200 genes that have been identified. But here's the challenge with the genetics. It's not the entire answer. Let me give you an example. We now have the ability, um, sorry, I apologize. We now have the ability to uh, detect, let's say one of the more common genetic uh, diagnoses I'm seeing now is NR5A1, okay? This is a very interesting genetic condition. I'm not gonna go into detail, but what's interesting about this condition is you, it's a range of phenotypes from a typical female, typical male, everything in between. And then you can have two testes, one testes, one ovary, ovotestes, and so there's a whole range. And I think that's where, even now we have a genetic uh, diagnosis, we still need that molecular understanding and we still need that anatomic understanding. So I think the genetics, is important and we need to recognize the role of genetics, but it's only one piece. Half of the DSDs, I'm gonna tell you the most challenging group of DSD is 46XY DSD. Over 50% of those um, kids don't get a more precise genetic condition. So I think when I see families and we don't um, identify a genetic explanation for their features, it may not be that they don't have a DSD. It may be that we don't have the technology in 2020 to identify that genetic difference. And so I think this is where we tell families, maybe we need to come back um, to the genetic evaluation as we continue to identify um, more uh, genetic explanations. I think that's one aspect. I think that um, uh, within genetics, there are two approaches. One is an isolated DSD um, where you're seeing an infant with uh, features that are affecting, as I said, chromosomal gonadal anatomic development. But then there are this other group of individuals or children or adults with a um, syndromic, um, with syndromic features. And so we need to think of them aligned with the potential syndromes. Are there cardiac anomalies associated? Are they having um, other uh, systems um, affected? Is there a development issue? For example, if the child also has GU differences with DSDs, but also has developmental delay, well, that puts in, in a whole other differential. And so I don't think that I, as a urologist, can simply order a karyotype, order a snipper right. First of all, I think karyotype is so limited in 2020. I mean, karyotype is like 1970s medicine, but I shouldn't just order that panel. There are implications to which 
uh, whether we need targeted genetic testing based on our uh, anatomy and molecular endocrine evaluation, or do we look at a whole panel? Do we target a syndrome evaluation? That's where um, working with a geneticist, with a genetic counselor is really important because there are implications to these genetic findings and to the family or to other family members or to future family members. And so um, we've created a whole process around um, genetic evaluation for our DSD patients, um, recognizing that there is a role for genetic counseling in addition. So I think the future of DSD is exciting and it's challenging and I like challenging, exciting areas, um, but I can talk much more about that. That's almost a whole, I have a whole separate talk on just the genetics um, aspect. Thank you for that answer. Um, another question that has arose, are there differences in surgical outcomes or satisfaction if surgery for children with DSD is delayed until later in life um, versus infancy versus school age? So the question was differences in outcomes and satisfaction. So this is an example of where we really need to be more precise in which DSD are we describing and which condition are we, and which approach are we describing, okay? And so this gets back to if we can be more precise in our um, uh, uh, diagnosis or evaluation and more precise in which condition. Let me go back to our case presentation, which is CAH, okay? Um, great data now is coming out of um, patient-reported outcomes uh, with regards to the modern surgical approach that I have described um, and that there is minimal complication risk uh, and uh, a good uh, satisfaction. These are from cohorts that are coming out of um, you know, Dr. Uh, Rank uh, is his, his case series from Indiana. And I think the question remains, what if we perform that surgery later? Well, I'll tell you, I have performed that surgery in adolescence, um, coming from other countries with delayed access to care, and in young women. Um, you know, I, I'm also at the University of Washington, so I operate on newborns, toddlers, children, teens, young women, primarily, you know, as a pediatric neurologist, it's, it's in infants and early childhood. And I'll tell you, I think um, when you're going uh, the distance in the infant perineum versus going the distance in an adult perineum, uh, there are additional nuances to that. I do think the recovery is harder on those individuals. And I'm not sure the outcomes are better. I think we, one of the challenges, I wanted to look at that actually, and many would like to look at surgery early versus surgery late. Uh, one of the challenges is um, very few um, individuals undergo late surgery, so you have a very small cohort, and then it's, the data is confounded um, by the, the other factors. Um, that's an area we need, we need more data. For example, the perineal hypospadias. Well, we're going to have an interesting data set, actually, Katie, from our COVID aspergillosis cohort here at Children's. You know, I was performing second stage, uh, first stage uh, repairs in two DSD patients yesterday. Um, the first patient has a very rare uh, genetic condition, so I won't say it because it's almost HIPAA violation because of how rare the condition is. Um, but he was undergoing his first stage uh, mid-scrotal hypospadias, 90-degree cordy, um, very under-viralized uh, repair at 23 months. And then my second patient was undergoing his second stage repair 
um, at, at um, uh, 20 months, whereas we initially would have done that, let's say at seven months and then six months later, um, much earlier. So we'll see if that makes a difference. Um, I can tell you that um, in the older boys where we've undergone staged reconstruction, let's say, um, you know, at the toddler age because they're coming from another country, they were adopted, or even I have a patient I'm operating on on Friday who's now at his third stage repair. He's a teen. Um, uh, the recovery's harder. And so I think from a surgical standpoint, I can operate at any age. The issue is how do we then um, manage and support them perioperatively. So what I've done for those kids to optimize their outcomes, because I want them to have a positive experience, not a traumatic one um, from their reconstruction. That's where we involve child life specialists. Um, we optimize pain control. Uh, we mobilize uh, their understanding and, and, and support through the reconstructive process. I think that's what's more complicated. Um, whereas when they're little, you know, the parents are somewhat traumatized by having a urethral catheter during their, you know, stage type of spatus. But the child, I see them, you know, after potty training, they don't remember me, you know, because they're little. Or I see them as teens and adults, and, and they're, they're doing well. Um, so long-winded question in terms of uh, reconstructive outcomes. I do think that one thing we need to remember um, in our reconstructive approaches is managing function form and function. And one thing I have seen is when um, the goal was perfect anatomy, then that was an issue. I think our goal needs to be optimal reconstruction that optimizes function. And I think that's what you're seeing in the um, CH reconstructions um, and, and, and approaches there. But I think even when it comes to, let's say I have a DSD patient, 46XY DSD male, his glands is only a centimeter, even after periop, let's say testosterone, because he had a micropenis, we had to see if it would respond to testosterone. Well, am I gonna bring that meatus to the tip? No. And so managing expectations with the family is really important, no matter what age, um, um, because you know, uh, that's when you, uh, I definitely think, um, are at greater risk for uh, complication. I think the other issue with later um, ages of reconstruction, you know, I operate also internationally. I've been going every year for almost five years now um, to Armenia. Those kids are getting reconstructed later. And um, I think it's, it's more traumatic for them. Uh, regardless of the pain control or what have you. They, they're going to have a conscious memory of it, and so then the challenge is making sure their conscious memory is a positive one. I, that, I can go on and on about that, but we need more data, and I, don't, and I think um, some countries in Europe are probably going to get that data since they're not operating anymore. They've put a total moratorium on infant genital reconstruction, so we will see, you know, 15 years from now um, what the sequelae are of that, but it's not just surgical complications, not just medical complications. We have to think of the whole picture um, in terms of their experience and development. And I'm a pediatric urologist, so I often tell families, you know, my bias is I operate on infants um, and they do well, um, um, but there are certainly, uh, and then, you know, let's say with the DSD um, surgeries with regards to uh, vaginoplasty, you know, I also manage their expectations regardless of age that there is a risk for vaginal stenosis. But, you know, Katie actually, Kanalikio, is coming out with some good data that she looked at our CH series over 20 years and she showed that actually, and, and we presented this at the um, International DSD Conference in Brazil, IDSD, last summer, um, they do well just with dilation. Um, 
um, very few need uh, major reconstruction. So I think we'll still need to continue to gather that data. Um, and I think we need to think of the child developmentally at each stage. And I don't think there's always, a, a, and then managing the risk benefit um, of all of that. Well, I think that answers a lot of the questions that were- Are there any other ones in the last minutes, Katie? Um, no, I think you covered uh, the questions that we do have here. So thank you so much for that wonderful talk and thank you for everyone for joining us and all those great questions. And I really thank you all again. I, I can't say it enough and I know um, you guys are uh, at the front line caring for our patients and I really um, wish you well uh, during uh, the COVID uh, pandemic and, and stay safe. And I do mean that you are the future uh, of DSD. And if you ever have a patient or a question, um, you're always uh, welcome, welcome to reach out to me. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.